Oh, it's great. Good to see you. Are you glad to be here? Glad to see all of you folks on the sites. Uh, if you are interested in hearing more from the Stobies, uh, they are going to be sharing more on Wednesday evening here at the Downs Road site. For those of you at our other sites, if you want to come join us here uh, Wednesday evening, and that would be great. And before we jump into sermon, I also want to let you know, good news, uh, we told you back in the summer that John and Stephanie Pazook and their four children uh, were going to join our staff team, and that is happening this weekend over at East Abbey. So uh, John is not a stranger uh, to Northview. He was in our teaching internship about a decade ago, uh, actually grew up here, was baptized here. Uh, served on worship teams, went into seminary, then came back to the teaching residency. And the last eight years, they have led Whistler Community Church, uh, up in Whistler, obviously. And now they're returning uh, to give leadership uh, at our East Abbey site, and then as well being part of our ministry team here. So if you see them around, uh, bless them over at East Abbey. They're going to be praying for them this weekend. So God bless you guys in the East as you welcome these guys uh, as your new site pastor. So we are picking up our study in the Gospel of John, and you want to have your Bibles and follow along. I am sure that uh, if we had time to ask, everybody has their particular favorite type of television or movie genre that you would turn to. If you've got an evening free, what would you particularly turn to? Uh, I remember as a kid, one of my first jobs was mowing grass in the neighborhood, and it seemed like when I would get down the street to this one widow lady's house, it didn't seem to matter what time of day or day of the week it was, she was always watching The Price is Right. Bob Barker somehow was on her television every time I was there to mow the grass. At least it felt that way. Uh, 6 p.m. Sunday night was a big deal for us as a kid. Uh, long before cable television and anything that we thought about streaming platforms 24-7 that we've got these days, uh, you were lucky to get two or three channels with rabbit ears on the back of the television. And any of the rest of you remember those days? But Sunday night, 6 p.m., was the wonderful world of Disney. And so a bowl of popcorn, Disney, and hoping and praying that it would finish on time and that the, you know, the great thing would end because we had to skedaddle across the alleyway to, to be to church at 7 p.m. Because in those days, we were real Christians and we did Sunday night church as well. Then as we got older, the folks started to let us listen in a little bit to their shows. So we got to watch Perry Mason and Columbo. And some of you young in the room have not a clue what I'm talking about. But that genre sort of stuck. And if you would look over Carolyn and my playlist these last several years, you would see that legal dramas and detective shows are at the top of our list, particularly British dramas. So Sherlock and Vera and Midsummer Murders, Wallander, Shetland, Inspector Morse, those kind of shows. I like to holiday with John Grisham, and Carolyn travels with Agatha Christie. That's our life. Now, maybe you're into crime and punishment, or maybe you're not. But whether or not you love courtroom drama, you know inherently that building an argument and a case, eyewitness accounts are critical. And so for that lawyer, circumstantial evidence is one thing, but if you can find an eyewitness, or if you can find some video at least that will give a picture of the crime, and so John, the gospel that we are starting, is one of four witnesses to the life of Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of your New Testament. 
And John has one goal, which we introduced last week. It is at the end of the book, chapter 20, verse 31. He said, this is my goal. The reason I have written these things is that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. Thesis statement in the end of the book. This is why I wrote, I am trying to convince you that Jesus was and is who he claimed to be and that it matters. And so in order to reach his goal, he must convince us. He must convince us with evidence. And so chapter one actually records a series of four testimonials. And last week we looked at John the author's personal witness to the author the introduction to Jesus, those first 18 verses, uh, just the prologue, the intro, the opening arguments, and he is pacing up and down like a, like a good attorney. And don't get hung up on that phrase. I know it's an oxymoron, but anyway, he's a good attorney. <laughs> Talking about the word became flesh. The word, the logos, the memra, the higher power took on human flesh and walked among us. And then in the next 16 verses, he continues to build his case, and that's where we are this weekend. And in essence, what he is saying is, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, today you are going to hear evidence, and you are going to meet two characters, you are going to hear two questions, two declarations, and then finally a closing remark. Translated, that means we have a seven-point sermon. We start with the two characters. Chapter 1, verse 19 this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So we meet our first two characters. Character number one is John himself, who we met actually last week. In chapter one, verse six, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now we should just pause there and go, if you happen to be in the room and you're a single dude named John... This is an incredible pickup line, right? If you want to get the girl, just text her John 1 verse 6 or write it out in a card. Better yet, there was a man sent from God. His name is John. Here I am. But John, the author, introduces us to a, another guy named John and doesn't give us any background, doesn't give us any details. He, he simply assumes that we will know and we will pick up from the context that it is John the baptizer or John the Baptist. He gives us none of his biography, none of his background. He just drops his name and he assumes his readers know. And probably in that first century, his readers did know who John the Baptist was. But if somebody in our context today would pick up a Bible, having never read it and opened to the Gospel of John and simply began reading without any context, well, first of all, last week would have been confusing because what is this word become flesh? And then he just drops the name of some guy named John with no context. We're into the middle of a story. Who is this guy? So Matthew and Mark, they introduce us to John the Baptist when he's an adult, when he's already preaching. And so if you take Matthew 3 and Mark 1, they're like mirror texts. They basically say exactly the same thing, that John came preaching and Mark says he appeared baptizing in the wilderness and preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They have the exact same commentary. And they almost make it sound like John just shows up. John appears in the wilderness preaching. But he didn't just appear. Because John's coming was long predicted. There were Old Testament prophecies telling us that this guy would come. So let's go back, the end of the Old Testament. 
The end of the Old Testament, if you have never read it, the context there, 400 years prior to Christ's life, the nation of Israel had slipped into a spiritual coma. They're bored with the things of God. If you read Malachi, it's a disturbing text. They're not taking their faith or their worship seriously. And the final book, the four short little chapters of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, is a stinging rebuke by God to his people. And in essence, what he says to them, I wish you would just stop playing games with your faith. In chapter 1, verse 10, he says this, Oh, that someone among you would shut the doors. Uh, You know what? I thought of this during COVID because for the first time in our lifetime, the doors were shut. And in Malachi, it was a different context. The Lord's like, would somebody just chain the doors of the temple shut? I'm tired of your useless sacrifices. Your heart's not in it. You're going through the rituals, but you're not really there. Would somebody just close the temple down? But at the end of the book, as he points forward to days of renewal and revival, he says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. So a prophecy about a guy who will come in the spirit of Elijah. Now, fast forward those 400 years to the opening of the New Testament. And Luke records the story of the birth of Jesus, but also the story of John the Baptist's birth. And so we meet Zachariah, a priest, and his wife named Liz. They're a godly couple. They're faithful, but they're childless. We're told that Elizabeth was barren. She wasn't able to bear a child. And so Zachariah, in his older years, is nearing retirement as a priest. And he's in the temple, and an angel speaks to him, and he says, hey, you're going to have a child, a special child. And not just because it's a child born in your later years, but because this boy has a special mark on him. And he says in Luke 1.16, many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now just stop there, because in your head it should be going ding, ding like we just read Malachi, right? Malachi ends. One is going to come like Elijah before the great day of the Lord. And then a prophecy to Zechariah. You're going to have a boy and he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to their children and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, right? Character one, John. Character two is actually a group of people, the accusers. So the Jews, verse 19, we already saw that. The Jews sent this group of interrogators out to meet John. And if you jump over to verse 28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan River. So John the Baptist is out in this region. There's a town named Bethany and there's a region named Bethany across the Jordan River out in the wilderness. And they go out to question him. And it's the first mention of a group that is going to be prominent throughout this book. In fact, prominent throughout our study. The Jews. Now, you know well today that the Jews simply refer to the Jewish nation. It was sort of a shorthand for several sort of connotations, either specifically those who lived in the province of Judea, the Judeans, and therefore shorten it down to the Jews, or to the entire nation of Israel, the Jewish nation. But regardless, shorthand, the Jews. And the Jews, that phrase is used 71 times in the Gospel of John. 
That phrase only appears 190 in the whole New Testament. And 71 of them are here in this book. It is a major preoccupation for John the author. Sometimes the references are neutral. Sometimes a few are positive. But the vast majority of the references to this group of people is negative. It is pejorative. It is the religious leaders who are actively opposing Jesus. Now, if we had time, which we don't, you could do a Google search, you can get on your Bible software, and you can pull up all 71 references in the Gospel of John and just run through it. And you will see questions like, by what authority are you doing what you're doing? How dare you uh, heal somebody on the Sabbath? What right do you have to break our laws? Glum grumbling, complaining. And ultimately hatching a plan to take Jesus out. Literally to kill him. Now we need to make one comment. Because this group of people held incredible power in the first century. They could make the lives of other Jewish people incredibly miserable. And you did not want to cross this group of people. You did not want to get in their bad books. They were truth people. They loved the scriptures, but they were not grace people. And their legalism was a crushing weight on the nation. If we had the time, and we will get to them, there are four specific texts in the Gospel of John that refer to people who lived in fear of this group of Jews. They lived in fear of them. They wouldn't speak of Jesus because they were afraid of the Jews. Uh, a blind man is healed, and they ask the parents, who healed this Son of yours. And they're like, we don't know, because they were afraid of the Jews. Interestingly, even post-resurrection, the day of Jesus' resurrection, they have seen him alive early in the morning, and that evening, the disciples are hiding away in some house in Jerusalem for fear of the Jews. They had incredible power. It is why the term Pharisee carries such a negative baggage even up until this day. They were the religious police. If you want a face for the Pharisee in our modern day, it's this face. Always watching. Always watching, Wazowski. Pharisee, for sure. Always looking over somebody else's shoulder. Always looking to see what's the other person doing. Are they breaking any rules? The point for now is that this group is going to play a major role in John's gospel. Character one, John the Baptist. Character two, the accusers. Now, two critical questions. So we're going to read the text from verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. So they said to them, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they'd been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you don't know, and even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John had been baptizing. First question, who are you? 
Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Why those three? Just a really quick comment, because there's way too much in this text, so we got to just run fast. All three were important. God-fearing Jews were supposed to be waiting for the Messiah, looking for the first coming of Christ, that he would come, the anointed one. Christ, the Messiah, would come to set them free. Secondly, Malachi, which we had already read, said that one will come in the spirit of Elijah, that Elijah the prophet is going to come before the great day of the Lord. And Moses, back in Deuteronomy, had also predicted that one day, although you wander away from me, one day God is going to raise up a greater prophet than me, and that prophet will call you back. So the Christ, Elijah, or the great prophet were well-known concepts. Are you one of these? What say ye of yourself? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Then who are you? We need an answer. Those who sent us are expecting that we have an answer. And John's answer is rather disarming, is it not? Because in essence, what John says to these accusers of his is, I'm just a nobody. That's really what he says. I'm just a voice. I'm one sent with a message. Like Isaiah said, crying out in the desert, I'm I'm a nobody Trying to tell everybody about the somebody who can save anybody. And I've been sent to beg with you. Get ready for Jesus. Get ready for Jesus. Prepare the way for the Lord. Just like Isaiah said, Isaiah 40. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. But please don't mistake me for anything special, he said. Verse 15, the one who comes after me actually ranks before me because he existed before me. We looked at that last week. And verse 27, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. In other words, the lowliest job of the lowliest household servant was to wash the feet. The lowliest of the servants was the one who would unstrap the sandals, and John says, I'm not even high enough to unstrap the sandals on his feet. All I need to do is fall on my face in worship. Who am I? It's the wrong question. Who is he is the question you should be asking. Who am I? Who cares who am I? Who is he? And there's something so refreshing about John's response because it's so non-defensive. It's not about me. It's about the one who's coming after me. Now, I just need to take a note here because notice that he has no fear of the Pharisees. That's interesting, right? Yes, it's interesting. (laughs) It's so interesting, Pastor. I'm with you. Thank you. Wait, you're not supposed to answer when you talk to yourself. Okay, that's all right. Why did JB not have any fear? All these other people feared the Pharisees. John the Baptist has no fear. Well, you know why? Because we are told he was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. He was full of the Spirit from the time he was conceived in his mother's womb. And the Spirit, one of the evidences of the Spirit of God in your life is that you have great boldness. You don't live in fear of what other people are thinking or saying about you. And John had no fear of this group of people. So the next question comes, well, if you're just a nobody, then why are you baptizing? Now, just take a note here that the Jews actually practiced baptism. You could be baptized into Moses. And you said, well, what is that about? Well, it was only for converts to Judaism. 
So normal Jews born into the Jewish uh, family tree, if you're a child of Abraham, if you're a descendant of one of the 12 tribes, you don't get baptized as a little child in Jewish tradition. But if you are a convert, if you're a proselyte coming into converting to Judaism, then you get baptized into Moses. You go through the waters of baptism and you come under the teachings of Moses, the Torah, the Old Testament law. And so the Jews practice baptism as well, but not for their own people. And it made sense that these people who were from the outside, the foreigners, the sojourners, the, the seekers, if you will, needed to make a public declaration of their faith, and they did that in baptism. Did you know today that in the Muslim world that persecution of Christians happens typically after their baptism? See, Muslims are free to study whatever they want to study. They can study Jesus. They can study other world religions. They can talk about stuff. They're not completely confined to the five pillars of Islam. It's okay for you to explore other world religions. It is not okay for you to identify with another world religion. And so when you become baptized is typically when Muslims begin to get persecuted. It was interesting. About 20 years ago, Carol and I in North India, and during that trip in North India, we witnessed several water baptism services. And it was interesting. Now, we're listening through an Indian translator. It was all in Hindi, and so they're translating for us the same kind of questions that we listen to in the baptismal tank. Have you received Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Have you given your life to him? Is it your desire to walk with him in newness of life? Are, are you going to you know, stay with him? And all those questions. And then some very interesting questions, longer than our questioning. Is anyone forcing you to take this baptism? Are you doing this willingly? Are you under coercion? Is this your decision? Is it your parents forcing you? Is someone challenging you into it? And, and the translator explained to us the reason why they do this is because in that region of North India, the radical Hindu and the radical Buddhist would persecute those who they thought were being coerced into and they would persecute the church because conversion is illegal. Interesting. You see, baptism was a radical departure from a previous way of life. It's identifying with a new group of people. Okay, enough said on that. John was baptizing Jews, however. It wasn't proselytes. It wasn't converts. And why are you baptizing Jewish people who do not need to be baptized? And basically what his answer is, and if you read the other context of his life, he basically says because there is a need for some radical renewal around this place. There are some religious people, Jewish people, God-fearing people, whose spiritual life is dead cold. They're bored to death. They're lifeless. They're apathetic. Just read Malachi and the 400 years of silence. That kind of spirituality needs to be put to death and buried. You need a spiritual fire lit under your butt. I'm here to give you a good kick. I'm one crying in the wilderness. Wake up! Get ready, get ready. Why are you baptizing? Because our generation desperately needs a spiritual awakening. We've been playing with religion. We've been playing with church. And it's time to repent because the kingdom of God is breaking in. But even more, I'm actually baptizing because I was told to baptize. And it leads us into the next section. So we've seen two characters, two questions, Two powerful declarations is next. Let's read the next chunk. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom it said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing. Notice that? For this purpose, I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed. John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend on heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Declaration number one. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And boom, like a lightning bolt across the sky. That's what they would have heard. Boom, he takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. There would have been multiple memories that come back into their mind from the Old Testament. They could have thought of the the Passover lamb that was sacrificed in the Passover week, the scapegoat, uh, uh, the day of atonement that was sent out into the bush, the ram that is caught in the bush and, and is the substitute as Abraham is sacrificing his son Isaac. But what they also knew was that no animal sacrifice could take away sin. Follow with me? They knew that those animal sacrifices couldn't take away their sins. So come on a detour with me. I mean, what choice do you have? Uh, It is so worth it. Hebrews 9 and 10. Hebrews 9 and 10 contrast the work of Jesus in the new covenant to the Old Testament priests and sacrifices of the old. And if you review all of the Old Testament ceremonial law, you come to this devastating conclusion, the work is never done. All the rituals, all the sacrifices, and sin still remain. Sin cannot be removed under the old covenant. So stay with me. We're going to read a lot. Hebrews 9, verse 6. The priests go regularly, performing their ritual duties, but according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice that are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And you're like, what? What? Then why are we doing this? If all of these sacrifices and offerings can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper, if sins are only covered over, not taken away, then why even bother? But they're symbols. They're symbols pointing us forward. In fact, Hebrews says they are shadows. They point us forward to one who is to come. And so read on further, verse 11. But when Christ appeared... He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. And just keep right on rolling. Chapter 10. For since the law was but a shadow, there's that phrase. It's a shadow of something to come. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered? If you had made men made perfect, if sin was taken away, then stop offering the sacrifices. They would have ceased to be offered. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That is devastating news. It's devastating. The moment the priest finishes, whether it's the daily sacrifice or the annual day of atonement, the moment he finishes that sacrifice, new sin is already piling up for tomorrow's sacrifice. Is that not discouraging? 
Hebrews 10, 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, did you catch it? The high priest never sat down. In the Old Testament, you read through it entirely. What one thing the priest did not do is they never, ever sat because their work was never done. And did you notice? Jesus sat. He finished his work and he went and he sat down. I'm done. It's finished. It's over. Complete. And all the Mennonites around the world in a quiet way say, hallelujah. You keep on reading. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Finally, somebody finished the job. Woo! I'm with you. Thank you. JB, look. Here's the one who can take away your sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world. Your debt is paid in full. Your guilt is gone. Your shame is covered. The power of sin over your life has been broken. And sin is not just covered over for a moment, but it is taken away as far as the east is from the west. Removed. Woo! Okay, Billy Graham, most of you remember him, the most famous evangelist last century. In 2001, when he was 83, he lived in 99. At 83, he had an interview, one of many. And the question was, in all your travels around the world, all the cultures, all the countries, everything, have you seen some common denominators? And his answer was really quick. He says, you know, I have, no matter where you go, no matter whether people are rich or poor, educated or not, no matter what political government they live under, I have seen these four things. Number one, people are confused about the meaning of life. They're trying to make sense of this crazy world, and they don't know how to make sense out of it. Secondly, everywhere I go, people are lonely. They want somebody to love them, and they want to be accepted by somebody. Everywhere I go in the world, people live with a level of unexplained guilt. They don't know why, but they feel bad about the things they've done, and they don't know what to do with that guilt. And finally, people everywhere in every culture I have visited live with a fear of death. And you see, our greatest human need is to be reconciled to our maker. Amen. And John the Baptist declares, look, here is one who can take away your sin. Second declaration. The same eyewitness makes that Jesus is the true baptizer. So John the Baptist is called... John the Baptist just said it. But Jesus is actually the true baptizer. I've just baptized you with water, but there is one coming after me who is greater than me, and he is going to baptize you. He is going to plunge you into the Spirit of God. Verse 33 tells us that. 
And now there is so much here. There is so much here. And we're going to come back to it a lot in this uh, study because John has a lot to say about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, particularly when you get up to chapters 14 and 16. But in this text, he gives us some of the basics that are critical for us to understand. The baptism of the Spirit is Jesus' work, is what we are told. How do you get baptized in the Spirit of God? Jesus does it. Tells us right here, Jesus is the one who baptizes you. Humans can baptize with water, but only Jesus can baptize with the Spirit. Now, it's really tempting right now to get into a topical study on water baptism and spirit baptism, and we don't have time for it. But a couple short comments. I want to give you one image or one question to take with you. And the question is this. Are you a cucumber or a pickle? Just ponder that. Think on it. They're the same, aren't they? They're both cucumbers, but they're radically distinct from one another because something radical has altered one of them. So when we talk about water baptism, you will sometimes hear this phrase, that baptism, water baptism, is an outward sign of an inward reality. And that's true. That I'm demonstrating publicly for everyone to see something that has happened to me privately. Something that the Spirit of God has done for me in my spirit, I want to publicly declare that I have died to my sin, I have repented, and now I have turned to Christ, and so I'm going to bury the old man in the water, we hold him till the bubbles stop, and then pull them up to newness of life. We get baptized in water for a number of reasons. Number one, and most important, Jesus commanded it. Secondly, it is a symbol of a spiritual reality in our life. And it's also the symbol of our inclusion into the family of God. It has always been. But where John here refers to is not water baptism. He's talking about spirit baptism. And what's fascinating is you start digging into the text regarding spirit baptism, and there's seven distinct uh, conversations around this in the New Testament and many other references, but you will find two sides of the coin. You will find a text like this that says, Jesus baptizes us by the Spirit or with the Spirit. You will also find in other passages that the Spirit baptizes us into Jesus. Did you hear that? Jesus baptizes us into the Spirit. The Spirit baptizes us into Jesus. I just let that hang. All right, let's go back to are you a cucumber or a pickle? You see, for right now, all I want to talk about is baptism. And the question is, do we actually know what that word means? Because when you say the word baptize, you're actually speaking Greek. Because it is a Greek word that was translated into our New Testaments. The Greek word is baptizo. The English word is baptized. You can see it literally right there. It is transliterated. And you're like, why didn't they translate it? I don't know. They chose to transliterate it. Well, what if they translated it? What would it mean? Good question. Thanks for asking. If it was translated, baptizo means to dip or to immerse. It was, it was literally a fuller's term. So a fuller is a clothier. They, they work with fabric. And so if you want red or green or blue or purple or some other color fabric, they will take the linen and they will baptize it. They will dip it in dye. And the fabric then is changed. And when it comes up out of the dye, its nature has been radically altered. It is now a new color. It was baptized. It's a clothier's term. 
But even clearer is if you look at the difference between some different forms of this verb, bapto and baptizo. So the same root word, I'm just trying to impress you with Greek, and I, this is all I know, so this is my two words. Bapto and baptizo. And baptizo means to dip or to immerse, that Fuller's term. And they both carry that idea of immersion, but they have a striking difference. And so years ago, I came across a very cool illustration, and this is legit. You can look it up yourself. A pickle recipe from 200 B.C. A cookbook from 200 years before Jesus was born that contained a pickle recipe. And that pickle recipe uses both those words, babto and baptizo. So in canning season, in fact, we're in canning season right now. In fact, some of you may have put up pickles this week. I don't know. But in this particular recipe, there were two baptisms. You first baptize those pickles in hot water. You pour hot water over them or you dip them. You baptize them. Why do you do that? You blanch them. Well, you clean them off to begin with, but then you blanch them. That boiling water over the cucumbers turns them a bright green, and you want a nice bright green pickle when you put it in the jar. And then, baptizo, you immerse them in the brine, and the brine literally changes the nature of the cucumber. So baptizo, they're simply dipped, and the color changes. Baptizo is they are immersed in. The first baptism, dip, bapto. Second, baptizo, immersed. And you can tell the difference between a cucumber and a pickle very easily, can you not? So baptism in the Holy Spirit is not babto, it is baptizo. It is a change in your nature, it is a transformation. And you go, what is the evidence of the Holy Spirit's baptism in your life? Watch for life transformation. And at least three specifics, and there are many others. But number one is boldness and witness. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be my witnesses. And that is precisely what we saw in the New Testament church. These scared disciples who were hiding away in an upper room suddenly become bold proclaimers of the gospel. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. You want to know what the Spirit does in your life? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's all those great fruits in your life. And secondly, or thirdly in this, in this book, Jesus gets all the glory. We get to chapter 16. The Spirit causes us to glorify Jesus. You see, the, the Spirit is the most shy or humble of the Trinity, if you will. The Spirit is always like, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. It's not about me. Look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. The Spirit is always pushing us to Jesus. To be baptized by Christ into the Spirit, by the Spirit of Christ, then, means to be totally overwhelmed, totally infused, totally transformed. You have not just been dipped, you have not just been blanched, but you have been immersed in the brine, and your nature has been changed. You're a pickle now, not a cucumber. And I think that there are way too many Christians, so-called Christians, in North America who have been dipped, but not transformed. So just because you have prayed a sinner's prayer at some point along the journey of your life, maybe you went to Sunday school, maybe you went to a Bible camp, maybe you even went to a Bible school, you've had some religious experience, just because somebody dipped you in water, maybe even you're a member of the church, 
You've gone through confirmation classes or you've had other religious experiences, quote unquote, does not mean that you have been transformed. You see, it is entirely possible that you could be baptized in water and never truly baptized by the Spirit. You just got wet, but you were not changed. And John is building his case like a great attorney at law, and he's rolling out eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness, and he has one goal in mind. I want to convince you that this guy is the Son of God, and that you will believe in his name, and by believing in him, you will have life. And so there's one concluding remark. We're coming to the end. Verse 34, he is the Son of God the unique and only one. Some translations say he's the chosen one, the elect one, because the Old Testament prophesied a chosen one would come. And so if Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, then we have only one proper response, and that is to fall at his feet and worship and declare him Lord and God. Amen? Amen? To turn to him for freedom from guilt and shame and the power of sin. If he is indeed the one who takes away sin, I need in on that. And to turn to him for the power that I need for daily life. If he is the giver of life, and if the Spirit lands on me, in John 7, we'll get there. What the Spirit does, it gives us an overflow. There's a river of life flowing out of us. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. You know, it's that song. Every legal drama relies heavily on evidence. And the most powerful evidence is eyewitness testimony. And so we've met two more. We met John the author last week, and we met John the Baptist this weekend. And they both point us to the veracity of who Jesus was and is. And here's our conclusion. If Jesus be God, he is worthy of my worship, and he is worthy of my life. So would you stand together with me? I want to pray for you. Father, do what you want to do with your word, Lord. I think that the ministry of John the Baptist is a ministry that we need today. Because when we read Malachi or when we read the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, there's an awful lot that sounds familiar to our North American setting. Where a majority of our population still claims the name Christian, they tick off the box, Christian. But it hasn't made any difference in the way they live their lives. And oh God, how we might need a John the Baptist to say, prepare the way for the Lord because the kingdom of God is breaking in. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away your sins, the one who baptizes you by the Spirit into a radically transformed life. Oh God, would you seal that into our hearts and lives that the evidence of the Spirit is lives that have been changed. Lord God, we come to you, we confess our need of you, that you live the life we couldn't live and you died a death in our place as our substitute. We gladly receive that gift of life, and Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name that we would be filled, that we would be baptized on a daily basis, an ongoing daily renewal, being transformed, an overflow coming out of our lives, that there would be evidence in our lives that you are indeed the owner of this life. And so, Lord, we give that to you in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.